Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. Uh, with me today, Tom Campanella, a professor of architecture at Cornell, but more importantly, author of a, a really great new book called Brooklyn, The Once and Future City. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here and in person. Yeah, so, so Tom, we were just talking about this before we came on. This is the first in-person podcast that we've done for all you Firewall listeners uh, since COVID started. Hugo and I have done a couple together um, but in terms of having like a proper guest, uh, Tom was the first one, and uh, he had both shots, I had both shots, and we decided to go for it, and here we are. So um, either the science is right and we're fine, or it's not and we're all screwed. But <laughs> in which case, we got bigger problems on the podcast. Um, so, so, Tom, what, first of things, what made you decide to write this history of Brooklyn? And was it are, pe- are people saying, oh, Brooklyn became so trendy, so you're capitalizing on the trend? But you're like a real Brooklyn guy, Marine Park guy, not, yeah, a, right. not a hipster Bushwick guy. <laughs> from, from what I call Deep South Brooklyn. I, it was a homecoming of sorts. I had been away for many years. I, I was in Cambridge and then taught at, um, at Chapel Hill for about 11 years. And then I was lucky to get this job at Cornell, which brought me back to the Northeast. And around the same time, my parents um, were getting ill and moving on, so to speak. And I really wanted to, um, I was coming home a lot to take care of them in turn, my mom first, my dad. And um, I just, uh, I just wanted to delve into this place that had, you know, created me uh, and that had uh, been home to four generations of my family. And, and especially the southern half of Brooklyn, as you know, yes. had been, has been so little studied, really, um, and written about, except for Coney Island and maybe a couple of other things. But, um, and I wanted to kind of balance that yeah, picture. Yeah, you have, I guess... Jennifer Egan wrote that novel, Manhattan Beach, so maybe a little bit there. Right. Good good novel, but obviously a work of fiction. Um, where were you born? I was born at Maimonides Hospital Got in it. Brooklyn. And you guys were, were living in the time in, in Marine Park? In Bensonhurst, in above, Bensonhurst. My, um, above my dad's shop. Uh, my dad had an electric motor sales and repair shop um, in, uh, on 65th Street. And um, he also taught in the public school system. So he, after, you know, the kids were done, he, he taught in the uh, homebound program, which I don't think exists anymore. After he was done with school, he'd come to the shop where my grandfather would be Got all it. day. Got it. So we're working on kids' minds during the day. And, yeah, and, and motors in motors the afternoon. Motors in the afternoon and <laughs> evening. Um, yeah, no, it's kind of the same thing. But you say that you had sort of this disdain for Brooklyn in, yeah. in, in the 70s. Um, tell me why, and I wonder if you know it's the same disdain that drove my family out of Brooklyn. Yeah, well, 70s. it drove a lot of families out of Brooklyn, and it, and there was a lot to disdain in the '70s, certainly. Although there's there's, I'm fascinated by this growing kind of nostalgia for that era um, in the face of hyper gentrification and you know um, you know ninety million dollar apartments on Fifty Seventh Street. Um, but yeah, I mean, you remember the city was not a, um, a very pleasant place. It was real. Maybe it was a little too real. Um, but, uh, I think, I think in a way everybody disdains the place that they've been born into and raised in at some point. And I I remember saying to, um, my neighbor who, um, for whom I worked at this printing company in lower Manhattan, I remember saying to him, I, I, can, I can't ever imagine myself living in New York City in the future. And he said, I can't imagine living anywhere else. 
And shortly before he died, many, many years, decades later, I told, I related that story to him, and I told him, I feel the same way as you did then now. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, in some ways, that's the definition of a New Yorker, right. when you just can't imagine living right. somewhere else, right. and all of the sacrifices it takes to live here, just in your mind, are unquestionably worth it, right? right. And, you know, exactly. and look, and by the way, a lot of people, I think, right now are asking themselves that question, but I think a lot of our listeners who are not New Yorkers, Kind of, they know of the new Brooklyn, the Barclays Center, Williamsburg, you know, right. Dumbo, Brooklyn. Um, if you don't mind, just give them some sense of the, of the history of the borough and kind of what it was as its own city, and then kind of how it became part of New York City. Well, it, it really was uh, this rural place across the river, um, land rich, whereas Manhattan, New York, prior to um, 1898. Uh, was land poor and hemmed in by, you know, Frederick Longstead called it like a walled city, you know, uh, and Brooklyn had all this land. It was also um, a place with small rural villages that were themselves very old. Uh, there were five or six of these little villages, one of which was an English town, Gravesend, um, and uh, it remained a very rural place. Gravesend's still almost rural. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, yeah. It's, um, yeah, that's right. It's, uh and, and except for the development up right across from the East River, right, where you had um, downtown Brooklyn along Fulton Street and um, Fulton Landing and then Brooklyn Heights, which really becomes the first suburb of New York City, uh, it was a rural place. And s the southern half of Brooklyn, what, you know, the, s the southern hemisphere, as I, I, I've referred to it, which is roughly everything south of the terminal moraine. So if you draw a line from Bay Ridge across, you know, Prospect Park and, and uh, heading northeast, everything south of there is really um, a whole nother world in many ways. And that remained rural until parts of it were being actively farmed into the 1920s. When, when did Coney Island kind of come about? Oh, Coney Island, yeah, Coney Island's the exception to a lot of uh, the story of southern Brooklyn. Um, because that starts in the mid, I'd say the second half of the 19th century, and it really starts going gangbusters by the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th. Um, and there were, you know, Steeplechase Park was really the first of the, the um, anchor amusement parks that really held the place together. It was the first, and it, it ended up being the very last to close. Yeah. And would you say, and I, I'm jumping around a little bit, but you know, there have been all these different visions for Coney Island's future. There's been multiple rezonings and all of that. Um, but for the listeners who only kind of know of its lore, it's an amazing place, but it's in a rough neighborhood, right? Yes. Um, and so do you see that kind of transformation happening, or do you think South Brooklyn's its own world and mm. it's just it is what it is? Well, Coney Island is, is, is its own world, even in southern Brooklyn. And um, the, the subject of Coney Island's trajectory and development is that, that could take up six of these podcasts. But um, I think eventually uh, things are going to change there. I mean, you know, you're right on the water. You've got, and it's so well served by the trains, by rapid yeah, transit. And, and people, you know, today, when I take my students down there on field trips, they're like, well, why the hell are there like five different trains that turn, you know, to, to this place that's got like, you know, cotton candy stands and junk food stores. And um, no offense to the good merchants who are trying to make a go of it there. But, uh, and then I tell them what it was like once. And 
you know, they suddenly understand. Yeah, and, and could be again. And could be again, right. The infrastructure is there. And then a, another major figure in the story of South Brooklyn, although an odious figure, but my grandparents lived in his buildings, uh, was one Fred Trump. Yes. Right? Really developed uh, a, a lot of South Brooklyn. He did. He developed, he built thousands of, of, um, of uh, buildings. Uh, in the pre-war and right up to World War II, they were small um, brick bungalows, very cute and um, tiny, and so they were affordable, very well built. They're still affordable because they're small, uh, and they're all over the place. They're in East Flatbush, uh, Flatlands. There's some in Marine Park right around the corner from me. There's a bunch in Brighton Beach. And then in the post-war period, he got more into the uh, modernist tower in the park kind of model that the that the housing, you know, the uh, that NYCHA was doing at the time and and others. Um, and he was, you know, he was um, he he was a good builder and a good developer. Um, but he had it. He, it sounds like a, a little bit of a fucked up father. <laughs> yeah, he, he he you know he certainly was not a, a person with um, a a very expansive notion of racial <laughs> equality. Let's put it that way. Um, and um, and he he also there's lots of stories about how he massaged the uh, FHA you know the uh, Federal Housing Administration loan. New York programs. Times has had a lot to say about yeah, that in the last yeah. couple of years. Um, but his legacy is very different from his son's in that he built for ordinary people. Yeah. Where I don't think his son ever did. No, my my grandparents lived on Y and West Second, Sheepshead Bay. Yeah. My grandfather was a baker. My grandmother was a secretary, and they lived in one yeah. of those buildings. Yeah. And it, you know, it was fine. It was good. Perfectly nice. They they both lived there till they died. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Brooklyn merges with New York, or kind of becomes part of the rest of New York City in 1898. Why does that happen? There, that's a complicated story. In a nutshell, um, it, it was also put to a referendum, and, and the um, it barely passed in um, Brooklyn. It was very controversial. New York City, of course, had was just salivating over Brooklyn because it was this uh, field of dreams that it, that you know New York City could grow into, Manhattan could grow into, and tap for all sorts of reasons. Um, there, there were, there was, Brooklyn was uh, deep, deeply in debt. Um, Brooklyn had water supply issues that uh, were promised to be solved by this union. So there were a number of um, advantages to, the, um, to joining together. Uh, of course, there was a generation of Brooklynites to whom this was, you know, apostasy. And, and it was referred to by them for many, many years as the great mistake. Uh, they're pretty much gone. <laughs> it's mostly the old Anglo-Dutch um, aristocracy that that really resisted it. So if you can go back 123 years, if so, you're you're from 2021, and they're saying to you, someone's like, "I'm undecided to vote yes or no on this referendum." What would you tell them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, so much of Brooklyn's shtick would never have been had it not. Um, joined to Manhattan and had Manhattan um, overshadowing it and kind of bullying it in a way. Yeah. I mean, that whole identity, that that kind of um, woe is me, Woody Allen, like self-loathing <laughs> that was such a part of Brooklyn's identity for so long, um, that emerges really in the wake of the, the union with New York City. Because suddenly here you had this surging... A city of its own. It would never be New York, Manhattan, 
Um, but it it was it was uh, so today it would fighting. Be, if it were its own city today, how what would, what would it rank as? Oh, it would probably be maybe fourth in the in the country. So like, back after Chicago, ahead of Houston. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and uh, so it went from this this uh, this little brother who's like fighting to keep up to suddenly always and perpetually in the shadow of Manhattan because it was just another borough. It, it lost its independence, literally and figuratively. And that, that gives birth to that, um, that, I think, that Brooklyn sense of underdogness, which is, you know, symbolized best of all by the Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. So my dad grew up, when they came to this country, um, grew up in the 50s in Crown Heights. Oh, okay. And, you know, describes in a very idyllic way, right? You mm. know, just kind of the way that they were able to really, you know, both to play outside in the neighborhood and go, he, he was going to Dodgers games when he was eight by himself and, right. you know, uh, use the city. Um, was Brooklyn kind of an idyllic place in the 1950s or is it just nostalgia? There, uh, there's been a lot of nostalgia mixed into that pot. Um, but it, in many ways, it was idyllic. Um, it... Uh, you know, it was there was a brief moment between the D- Great Depression and the the nineteen I'd say the mid to late fifties when everything was really clicking. Right, you had um, you had surging jobs. Right, industry is booming during the war years. I mean, there were the tens of thousands of men and women worked at the Navy Yard um, in during the war years, building some of the most powerful warships ever built. Um, you had industry doing well. You had um, people generally rising up uh, in in the you know socioeconomic sense. You had uh, thousands of African Americans moving up from the rural South yep. to um, to Brooklyn and and finding good jobs in industry, including at the Navy Yard. Uh, and then it starts unraveling, um, and 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 it's a sad story in a way, but it's and it's also a story that is not unique to Brooklyn. I mean, this is what happens to industrial well, that's, cities. Well, I was going to ask you. Right. So, I mean, one one argument for the your fictional referendum questioner 123 years ago is Brooklyn arguably survives and handles the death of manufacturing in the U.S. better than a Cleveland or Detroit or Newark. Because it's part of New York yes, City and has course. this cushion of right. you know all these white collar office jobs. Exactly. It, it, it right. That's right. I mean, as we transition to a service economy, you know, the the uh, the locus of economic power you know moves over across the river, and it's the financial sector and and the service sector. Uh, but the, but it was a terrible blow to Brooklyn all the same. I mean, you had you had in the years between the mid fifties and like nineteen seventy, you had um, industry after industry collapsing, or, or not collapsing, just leaving, you know. And and it was a number of, there were a number of different factors that fed into that. It, it wasn't any one thing. I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly the the alchemy of the, the end of industry in Brooklyn. But it was, uh, you know, accessibility to these dense, older manufacturing districts, the aging infrastructure. I mean, when you have a new company that wants to expand, you want for single floor, wide open space. You don't want to be stuck yeah, using hard, the service elevator. Tough, yeah. And then you had, um, you know, there was a lot of labor action right after the war because there had been this gentleman's agreement, you know, that there wouldn't be any strikes during the war years. And then 
there was all this pent up need right. to reconcile things with the workers. So it, it, it would seem to me like a good example of all of that that I think will be interesting for the listeners uh, is the history and the kind of the, even the current status of Industry City, right? So you have this place that was a hub of manufacturing, right. so much so that I believe they own their own rail line, their own yeah, electric sure. plant. They own the streets. I was involved in a, in, in a little bit of the rezoning for that. Oh, okay. uh, not recently, but yeah. uh, kind of the previous one. And then ultimately goes bust, right? So what were they mainly making there? Um, I, You know, I'm not 100% sure. I, I was one of the, you know, there were so many subjects that I could have tackled in this book. Uh, it would have been, I'd still be working on it. It'd be like, you know, the size of a six uh, telephone books. But um, I'm not really sure what, a, a whole range of products, I'm sure. Yeah. And then... It, when does it stop kind of becoming a functional place? Well, I, I would imagine it's in that period. I, I seem to remember as a child that it was it was still, you know, operating yeah. as an industrial area in the in the late 60s, early 70s. But it, it, it I'm sure, was in decline, in steep decline, yeah. um, like yeah. the rest of the, like, like Dumbo, you know. Right. And, and so in an interesting twist on kind of modern New York politics, as you know, but most listeners probably don't. So Industry City was then acquired by some ambitious real estate developers. Yeah. They started kind of turning it into kind of a cultural right. retail hub. The Nets made their practice facility there. Right. Um, lots of cool stores and restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there was a big plan to rezone it to really allow it to right. happen at scale. And it actually was defeated in the yes. New York City Council. Yeah. Yeah. Because local the local councilman Carlos Manchacha um, opposed it based on gentrification Fear grounds. Gentrification, yeah. So, as someone who understands Brooklyn over the, the long haul, um, was he right or was he wrong, and, and did he help or hurt his constituents? Well, gentrification is a is one of the more thorny um, issues in the urban planning and city um, management realm. Um, it. it would have contributed to gentrification. That's certain. Um, would that have helped or hurt his constituency? It's it's very hard to say. There's there's plenty of research showing that gentrification does harm the um, you know the uh, local population, especially renters, um, especially the people who are not invested literally in owning property. Yeah. It's very different for those who own property. I mean, they can see their property values skyrocket. Uh, there's also research, I'm thinking of the work of, of Lance Freeman at Columbia, uh, that has shown the opposite, um, that um, people of, of modest means and low-income folks actually choose to stay in a gentrifying place because they, too, are benefiting from the transformation. Right. The crime drops. There are more shops. There, there's a greater range of of, of uh, you know, goods available. There's all sorts of new amenities. The city takes things more seriously and upgrades the parks and playgrounds. And so they stick around. They're willing to pay more. Um, so it's it's very controversial. Yeah. And who knows how it would have gone in that case, in yeah, that situation. Yeah, and, and where it goes going forward. I, right. My guess is there's another round to be fought still in, in this one. Oh. All right, so l let's turn to the Dodgers. As our listeners know, I'm a rabid baseball fan. Um, I'm a <laughs> Mets fan because my dad um, was a Dodgers fan. Right, and right, then right. was bereft and then went <laughs> to the Mets in 1962, and uh, it's, it's been in my blood ever since. Um, how could New York have saved the Brooklyn Dodgers? I think had Robert Moses been... And, of course, Robert Moses was, the at the time, basically in charge of any and all 
city construction, planning, infrastructure, road building. I mean, he was basically a, a czar of sorts uh, in when it came to the built environment. And he refused um, Walter O'Malley's requests to use urban renewal funds, federal urban renewal funds, um, to transform the area around where the Barclays Center is now uh, to accommodate a new stadium. And, and in that, he was right. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't have been probably would not have been an appropriate use of federal urban renewal funds. But um, on the other hand, Moses was uh, very stubborn, and he had this vision for decades to transform the Flushing Park area. Yeah, you know, his, the, his the legendary, yeah. the mythic, um, you know, ash heaps from yes. the great Gadsby. And uh, he channeled everything he could there. He channeled, actually, the 19... What became the 1939 World's Fair was originally um, uh, aimed at being in Marine Park. Um, oh, wow. And, like, and he like where, pushed... Where, where the air, air fort field is? No, not, not... That's... No, actually, where Marine Park in the is Marine today, Park in that yeah, area, where Garrison Inlet is. Yep. It was, that was the original site that was discussed for the... It would have been the 1932 Washington um, uh, Memorial World's Fair, but it eventually becomes the 39th Fair, and M Moses pushes it to Flushing because he wanted that to be developed into a future park. And he does effectively does the same with um, the baseball issue. He he pushes for a new stadium there. Um, could it could it have been the Brooklyn Dodgers there in Queens? <laughs> Clearly, uh, that would have been problematic on a number of levels, but. Um, I think had anyone else been at the helm of all these agencies that ruled the built environment back then, I think the Dodgers could have been saved. And, and what's interesting, so first of all, clearly Walter O'Malley was right. Um, one of the most hated people right. in, but, in Brooklyn history. But he, you know, in, in my business in tech, we'd say that's just an, entre an entrepreneur with a great vision who yeah. acted on it, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. And the L.A. Dodgers, both financially and, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and in terms of results, are one of the most successful franchises in sports. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you ask my dad, who happens to be, works here, and he's sitting, you know, right, right at the, the one old guy right. in the office, um, he would say it was a travesty that, that the Dodgers were allowed to leave. And yet, if you look at most kind of modern stadium politics and policy, you know, the, argue, the evidence is all on the other side, right, that it doesn't make sense for cities or states right. to give tons of tax breaks or buy stadiums and all right. that. So is it possible that e even if uh, Moses had a lot of flaws as a human being, that he was right? Oh, it's very possible. Um, and I think, again, I think the use of federal urban renewal funds was, was inappropriate for what O'Malley wanted to do. Um, yeah, I mean, Mo Moses was a monster in many ways, but he did a lot of good. And, and I, I've caught flack for saying that. Um, but, you know, he, especially in his pre, in the pre-war version of Robert Moses, he did, um, you know, he was a great park builder. Yeah, the greatest yeah. park builder we've ever had I, in this city. My first job out of college was at the Parks Department. Is that right? And uh, <laughs> I worked in the Arsenal. And yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you, you saw his legacy every single right. day, right. good right. and bad. But uh, You I'm, know, a, yeah. another part of the Dodgers story is that um, the, the fan base was leaving town. And that, you know, that's the wild card in this. Would, would it have worked with all these people fleeing to Levittown, to yeah. Jersey? I mean, you know, they, they, in a way, they were, we've turned the story toward, you know, demonizing Walter O'Malley. It's easy to demonize. And, you know, there's this old joke that you, you have a gun with two bullets, and you're in the room with Walter O'Malley, Adolf Hitler, and, and Stalin. And uh, what do you do? 
And of course, the answer Stalin is you, you, yeah. you, you shoot Walter O'Malley twice. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you think of, of City Field as sort of an homage to Ebbets Field? Yeah, whatever. I mean, it's, I mean, it's still out in Queens. Right. Yeah. Can't can't, can't change the borough yeah. on it. So um, Brooklyn, you know, has had at least perceived to have had this huge renaissance. Um, what what should we attribute that to? Well, the the astronomical cost of real estate and rents here in New York City, for one. I mean, it drove people across the river seeking, you know, um, cheaper pastures. And, and, of course, you had enough creative types, artists and intellectuals, writers, musicians, actors going there that it created a, a vibe. And, you know, and then there's the folks that like to be around vibes and the folks that like to be around the folks that like that. So... You know, it was a tr- uh, in a way, it was a, a classic gentrification trajectory. And it developed its own vortex, its own, you know, center of gravity. Now it's, you know, Brooklyn is a global brand independent of New York City. Right. What, how do you think, so I, as our listeners are tired of hearing me talk about, I'm extremely worried about the impact of, of work from home on New York City's yeah. economy, because I just don't see how the commercial real estate market ever recovers from it, simply because in the, in the same way that when manufacturers in the second half of the 20th century kind of realized, oh, I can make this in Mexico or Taiwan for 20 cents on the dollar, yeah. and it's good enough, yeah. employers, including me, realized in the last year, like, oh, we're, this Zoom thing works pretty well. We're productive. I don't necessarily have to be in Manhattan yeah. or even anywhere. Yeah. Um, how do you think Brooklyn specifically fares from that? Because I, I, even if you accept my view as tr- as true and right, you can paint the picture that it actually benefits Brooklyn, or yeah. you could paint a picture that it that it hurts. Yeah, no, I think it has benefited Brooklyn. I, I think real estate values, even in you know my neck of the woods in Marine Park, have have risen. Um, because I think people are looking for more space uh, that they can afford, which means getting the hell out of Manhattan and and the very gentrified parts of uh, Brooklyn, you know, brownstone Brooklyn, and yet wanting, you know, also to be still in the city um, and not up in some Hudson River town. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, as far, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, the, the commercial real estate sector is, is certainly taking a blow and will continue to. And yet, look at the three of us were so overjoyed That's about true. meeting there in person There's something about here, human interaction right? that, that is underrated. And this space that you have here, I mean, I, I, I bet this was just such a glorious hive of activity. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, and, 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 and we it, want it, that. It, a lot it, of it, us it, want yeah, that. Yeah, it will be. But what's interesting is, like, what it will be instead is probably even some more conference rooms, right. and everyone right. just grabs a desk when you need to be yeah. here. Yeah. Come when you that, want. That's what's you coming. I, yeah. I, that's what's coming. Um, um, and I think it's, you know, in terms of, no one seems to use this term anymore, but telecommuting, you know, was predicted to bring about the end of cities decades ago. Um, you know, Marshall McLuhan and and George Gilder were all, and Alvin Toffler had all predicted that we'd be working from farms, you know, and enjoying right. well, the, the sheep. Right. And, and by the way, you, you could, if you truly believe in the potential of autonomous vehicles, right. make that prediction again, right? right? Because if you can get from some suburb into Manhattan in 16 minutes completely safely, right? you know, but again, I don't think that will happen, but, yeah. it, but it clearly... Um, but it, 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 it could, yeah. So we'll see. So l- last question. Yeah. You're a listener of this podcast. Um, you're visiting New York City. You want to do a day in Brooklyn. You've mm-hmm. got from 8 a.m. to midnight um, to fill, and you're happy to get around subway, Uber, walking, whatever. What should they do? 
Well, I would I would look at Brooklyn as a almost like a barbell, north south barbell. I would spend time right up around the river and Brooklyn Heights, which is one of the cradles of of Brooklyn. Um, you know, the the beautiful neighborhood that was really the first suburb in in, in New York City. Uh, and then I would make your make your way down um, Flatbush Avenue, which is really New Brooklyn's great north south main street. Yep. Um, Grand Army Plaza and, and um, Prospect Park, um, the Brooklyn Museum. But then I would head all the way down and, and explore the, the part of Brooklyn that really was one of the, is, is one of the longest settled places. Um, Native American culture was there in the late woodland period, probably dating back 1,500 years. Um, some of the largest Native American Lenni Lenape um, uh, villages were in the vicinity of Gerritsen Inlet, Gerritsen Creek in Marine Park. And it's also one of the first points of uh, landing and settlement of the Dutch uh, settlers. And so there's still some real extraordinary history down there. The, the, um, the Hendrick Lot House, for example, is this 300-year-old um, farmhouse that's basically you know, never been moved, uh, really. And, uh, and still sits in the middle of a block on East 36th Street in Marine Park. Um, and then, of course, you'd, you'd have to go down to Brighton Beach and Coney Island. I, I especially love Brighton Beach. Yeah, it's, um, it's an entertaining place. It's a very entertaining place. You'll sharpen your Russian vocabulary. Uh, I'm working on a novel. He was going to help me with it. And there's a, there's a bunch of scenes on the boardwalk in Brighton Beach because it's, it's, it's such an interesting place. <laughs> Actually, then, then the last final question. Yeah. Uh, where are they eating that day? Ah, uh, <laughs> Well, I, I would, you know, there, that's a that's a question for another hours long conversation. <laughs> I would just, I would, to just sum it up, um, I would get get a slice of cheesecake at Junior's. Yep. It's still great. Yep. <laughs> Even if it's not made in Brooklyn anymore, as I've heard. And you would say, is Peter Luger's better than the Times thinks? Um, probably. Yeah. Still yeah. a good steak. I actually went. Yeah. I I happened to be there. Um, Hugh and I have a friend, Howard, and Howard and I were having lunch there mm. on a Tuesday. The Times restaurant reviews come out on Wednesdays, yeah. but it comes out online on Tuesday. And as I'm literally in the Uber to Williamsburg, Howard texts me this link. And I open yeah. it up, yeah. and it's this devastating review of Peter Luger. Yeah. It's like this poor, satisfactory, like really horrible. And we get there, and, and you know, I've, I've been going there I mean, since I was one or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it is, and they've never once been nice <laughs> to me. And this one time, they were so <laughs> shaken by the review that they were like solicitous. Yeah, like, I had to go to the bathroom, and they're like, "We'll walk you there." I'm like, "I know where it is." They're like, "No problem," you know. And then I haven't actually been there since, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll see if that continues. But mm. anyway, Tom Capello, thanks for joining us. And and if you like this podcast, please go out and buy Tom's book. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you.